on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, here we go. Chalk Talk. The season announcements are coming in faster than Anna Netrebko's separation from Putin and harder than Will Smith at an awards ceremony. We're going to talk you through all the season details that you need to know. And then, Fire Shut Up in My Bones is, well, it's on fire. We play Monday evening quarterback and review the recent PBS screening. Plus, two-minute drill. Oh, my gosh. Anna, 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 what have you done this time? If you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you're going to click follow. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. And again, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscoregmail.com. Get your voice heard. Get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Spring has sprung here in Chicago and on the team. Baseball season's here. Weston, what else is here? Uh, I adopted a dog over the weekend, so I've got that in the other room waiting for me to uh, feed it and rub its belly. So I've had a pretty lovely spring so far. Marvelous. Awards season is here. And Ashley, how about you? What's here? Well, hello from uh, a lovely hotel room in Philadelphia. Uh, I think I'm going to, before the end of the season, try to record this in as many major cities as possible. Mm -hmm. That (laughs) that is not the city I actually live in. Um, But one thing I do want to mention is it's apparently not sportsmanship season. Uh, Because if anybody watched the Duke-North Carolina game in the Final Four over the weekend, Duke did lose to their longtime rival, North Carolina. And... Wendell Moore was the only Duke player to stay on the court after the loss and shake hands after the game. So in a world of sore losers, perhaps we all try to be a little more like Wendell Moore. I think so. Of course, um, Duke losing to UNC in the regular season and in the March Madness as well. If you are Mike Krzyzewski and you're going to go out, <laughs> to go out losing twice to UNC is crazy. Of course, this evening, uh, Kansas battling UNC in the in the uh, big game. Tobias Wright, former co-host, currently peeing his pants right now, and serves him right for abandoning us. <laughs> Huge Kansas fan. We'll we'll see if that game gets underway while we're still recording. In the meantime, we're going to talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Lots of season announcements that came out in the last week and prior to that as well. We're going to look at some of the big ones here in the U.S. we got a great roster of companies to run down, and we're going to break it down by uh, each of us giving a FTW for the win or a WTF, and I think we all know what that means. We're going to start <laughs> with our hometown team, which of course is Dallas. Celebrating their 65th anniversary, Ashley Hargrave, what's your FTW or your WTF? Well, I have both. Uh, For me, the for the win here is Patricia Reset singing anything, anywhere, even if it's the witch in Hansel and Gretel. I will take any opportunity to put her (laughs) on stage and watch her perform and hear that beautiful instrument. Also, another amazing voice that is more of uh, the current generation, Ying Fang in recital. I love that opera companies are taking some of these really, really hot stars and giving them a chance to shine in a vehicle that's outside of a traditional opera because you can be so many more characters in recital. So I'm really excited for those. Those are my two big wins for Dallas. Um... And Dallas, we we love you. By the way, we love we got a good thing going. We love you. my 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 WTF here is anybody programming Hansel and Gretel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just we're I being got, canceled I'm... immediately. Ashley, what have you oh, done you to can, us? You can, listen. I'm in Philadelphia. I can walk down the street and knock on the door and see if they'll take us. <laughs> How about you, Weston? What do you got? A FTW or a WTF? Um, well, I mean, I, 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 I do think that their uh, their win is, of course, their 65th anniversary. I, I think that they have really come to really establish themselves as a huge force in the uh, in the region. I, I feel like we talk a lot 
in uh, in our sort of discussions about opera but with a lot of these really huge companies, you know, your Met, your uh, uh, Lyric Opera Chicago and European companies, too. But that's why we're kind of doing this segment. We want to do kind of a breakdown of some more regional theaters as well. And I, I think that Dallas has really had a, a, a really nice sort of rise to power um, over the past, you know, a few decades. And like it's really highlighting Texas as a. Uh, part of the the movement highlighting des- uh, Texas as a destination for opera, uh, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, I don't really have a WTF because I don't want to be canceled. Um, there you go. Like some people, I think that it's a perfect season, and frankly, they should keep up their good work. I, I, Listen, I agree. The, I agree. The greatest like emotionally intelligent. Rela- Sorry, I just I want to get this out there so that I don't get this all fired. The greatest <laughs> emotionally intelligent relationships are. Built on trust and the ability to tell the truth. And my truth is that I cannot stand Hansel and Gretel. I'm very sorry. I just don't like it. Go, George. I think it's interesting being Dallas Opera. I've said this before on the show. It's not a secret. When I think of Texas and opera, I I think of HGO. I think of Houston. I think many people yeah, do too. That's fair. The fact right. of the matter is, is that over the years, as Weston says, Dallas has really established a brand and established a name for itself. And I, I think you see it in this season. Before we move on, actually, to Houston, I don't know if this is a FTW or WTF director. Tomer Zvulin, who is the general director at Atlanta Opera, also going to get to Atlanta Opera in a few minutes, is directing not one. Not two, but two <laughs> shows at Dallas. <laughs> and it's, I, I just, I find that surprising. He's a great director. There's nothing against him at all. He's doing Rigoletto uh, as well as Reingold um, uh, with his longtime designer, Erhard Rom, as well. Just, I, I, I thought that was unusual and interesting. Let's move it uh, then to the southeast, I suppose it would be, in the Lone Star State, over to Houston Grand Opera. Ashley, we'll go back to you for your For the Win or your WTF. I've got a lot of wins over here. I'm really excited about their season. Uh, first of all, lady composers, Ethel Smythe, bringing it on in. Sisters doing it for ourselves. Also, <laughs> they're bringing in their mariachi opera, which I, it's so great. And it's such a wonderful, like, series of cultural representations that are great right. for the area. They're great for the art form. Also, I will listen to Angel Blue sing Violetta and Tamara mm. Wilson sing Tosca anywhere. So, Absolutely. Houston. I'd listen to them Friday. sing the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> Weston, what do you got? I have a bit of a WTF. No, this is really nothing against uh, HGO. I, it, I was just confused because the, I was reading sort of the release and uh, it mentioned that they're pro, they're doing the production of the records in an English translation by Amanda Holden, which is uh, which I think is great. I think they're really HGO is really concentrating on that accessibility with the uh, mariachi uh, opera and of course you know the singing in English. I think that really works for their area. That really very much fits what they're trying to do to get opera out there to the masses. I was just shocked that uh, Dame Ethel Smith, Dame Ethel Smith, someone that British, apparently wrote an opera to French libretto. For some reason in my head, it was in English. And I don't know if my brain was off, if I completely forgot. But for some reason, I was convinced the records was in English already. So that really threw me for a loop. So I had to do some Googling. And uh, yeah, apparently it's in French. Oui, oui. When I look at the titles... I don't think anything is out of the ordinary here. When I look at the roster of artists, these are great artists. Amanda Majeski, um, Matthew Polanzani, but the directors themselves too. Uh, there are some HGO debuts, especially from Europe. Uh, Benoit Jaco, uh, Francesco Negrin coming over. But nothing really surprises me. Nothing takes my breath away in this season. That's fair, I think. I I, I do think that it's a, it's a very well thought out season in terms of what this is one of the few companies out there that's that are of any size that is really like trying to think of what does our audience want specifically not not what do what what do like the audiences in general want not what frankly do we three here at opera box score want necessarily you can really tell that there's been like some research and thought put into the selection this this season 
for the region. And I think that's probably what's going to bring it through and hopefully bring people uh, into the theater, too. A lot of these uh, season announcements definitely highlighting the need to get back in person, the need yes, of absolutely. waiting. More than that. one company is saying it's been two years. What are we going to come back and do? Let's get out of the Lone Star State. Let's head over to the West Coast, LA Opera. Now, Weston, we'll start with you. This season announcement actually came out at the beginning of February. <laughs> we, we might have missed the ball on this one just a little bit. Most of these that we're talking about today really came out in the past two weeks, uh, and we've been meaning to talk about them. And we were looking at, like, oh, what what are some other ones we haven't mentioned from maybe a little bit farther back? And all the way back in February, we realized we didn't talk about L.A. Opera's season at all. And uh, L.A. Opera is not uh, a, a small-time regional you know, uh, company. It, it's huge, and they have a really wide and varied season this year. A lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, I think that uh, if I'm going to pick a, a one for the win that's sort of all-encompassing, we have the, uh, the debut uh, of Colombian-American conductor Lena Gonzalez-Conados as resident conductor for the first time. She's the first... Uh, Latina woman to uh, to hold this kind of uh, high ranking conducting position in a major U.S. opera company, and that's that's for me is like the most exciting thing in a season, honestly filled with a lot of exciting things, which I'm sure Ashley uh, will probably get into next. I mean, yes. Here's here's what I like about what LA does. Two things. The first is they. They move the types of productions they do all around. They've got solo concerts. They've got duo concerts. They've got traditional operas. They've got new creations of operas. They also move their venues around a lot. There's an art museum in the mix. They're doing yeah. stuff at Dor Dorothy Chandler. They're doing things in a number of different places. I mean, LA is a big area. It's a lot to cover. So I appreciate the geographic diversity that they're bringing <laughs> to, their, to their performance spaces. I will say... One of my questions <laughs> is they're doing Frankenstein live and it's announced as part of their season. <laughs> it, to me, that feels like an L.A. film move, not an or opera orchestra of L.A. opera move. I... <laughs> I don't know. I have questions. I have questions. Yeah, it's it's, it's an inter interesting choice. LA has has a lot of uh, like non main stage things going on this season. They're really doing an emphasis on sort of like you know, I don't know, not really guerrilla opera necessarily, but guerrilla music things. You know, where they're they're going all around doing a lot more outside the realm of their main stage productions. Uh, and honestly, I think uh, scoring Frankenstein live is is always a lot of fun. I love Frankenstein. Uh, I've always been a big Mary Shelley fan ever since I was in like fourth grade. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, if if I mean, just completely speculating here, but since they are an opera company, maybe this is like a hint to a composer out there somewhere to come and be like, hey, we're really hurting for uh, the definitive Frankenstein opera. There have been a few attempts. None have really made it into the repertoire. None of them are quite like, oh, yeah, the Frankenstein opera. That is that is a niche that needs to be filled. And maybe they're uh, they're subtly pushing someone to go for it. Look, here's the thing about Los Angeles, right? There's only one thing you cannot be in L.A. You can be spectacular. You can be dreadful. You can be offensive. You can be conservative. The one thing you cannot be is boring. L.A. Mm -hmm. does not have time for boring, and this is not a boring season. Ashley, you already mentioned it. Multiple venues getting outside of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, getting into different places in L.A. This is not a boring season. We're looking at the West Coast premiere of Omar, which is based on Omar Ibn Said's remarkable life, the only mm -hmm. known surviving American slave narrative that was written in Arabic. Score by Michael Abels, who, of course, did the uh, Oscar-winning, uh, worked on the Oscar-winning film Get Out. Now, at the same time, you have a new production of The Marriage of Figaro, directed by filmmaker James Gray, with costumes by Christian Lacroix. If there's, it, <laughs> it certainly isn't boring. It's a dreadful idea, because... <laughs> High fashion designers are, are brilliant people, but they're awful costume designers. 
because you can't really wear <laughs> abstract clothes when you're telling a narrative. Like it just doesn't work. But man, it is not boring. I will say that for L.A. opera. Except perhaps for, uh, you know, uh, the uh, there's a production of Debussy's Peleas and Mezzelon with a great cast, I might add. Will Liverman's in it, uh, Susan yeah. Graham for yeah. Chip and um, But it's going to be directed by David McVicker. Th- this is who, my nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was about to say, George, I'm surprised you didn't mention it because I feel like that's one of those operas that's slow moving enough so that you really oh want to have something a little <laughs> bit more colorful on stage, just like, you know, something, some little keys to jangle in front of the audience every so often. Don't get me wrong. Love the opera, love the production, love the cast. Honestly, I will probably love the production because I I don't need keys jangled in front of me for uh, for uh, uh, WC, but um, maybe for George, maybe something with a little bit more flash. I'm having a panic attack over here. <laughs> Ashley, let, let's move on to, to FGO, Florida Grand Opera. Take a look at their season. Give us your For the Win or your WTF. You know, my WTF's a little bit silly, but it's it, it stuck out to me. There's not any casting info. I I know we don't have to have the whole season planned out, but like speaking of key jingling, just give me like a morsel, a nugget. Give me a name to look forward to. Give me more Angel Blue. Let her sing everywhere. I don't know. But the fact that there's no casting info listed on any of these was <laughs> just like a mild, mild bummer for me. Although, and I know Weston's probably going to talk about it, uh, I'm very excited about the Matrimonio Segreto set in 80s South Beach. I'm very excited about that. Honestly, it's amazing. I think it's a a great idea. I'm not super familiar with the opera, but uh, um, I mean, the fact that doing Chimorosa anyway is kind of an, an interesting uh, move from uh, Florida Grand Opera, but they're translating it into Spanish. And that seems to be the theme for a lot of these companies is that they are translating to make sure that, you know, someone can come in off the street and have some like connection to what's going on. And setting in Miami in the 1980s is just the funniest thing to me. They're... Um, their poster uh, is truly extraordinary. It's got a, a gentleman in the in the full, you know, '80s outfit, pink blazer, huge, John Johnson, uh, at his huge cell phone that will absolutely knock you out. The grease back hair, the sunglasses. It's everything you could possibly want. And frankly, if if I if I have the stomach to go down and visit Florida again. Uh, I will want to see it. <laughs> uh, look, look, I, I get the idea of, of translating the opera into Spanish. I'm sure probably most of the operas that aren't in English will be super titled in English and Spanish. Completely agree with that, especially if you're a company that is in a state like Florida, Texas, Absolutely. California, which is going to have uh, a sizable audience that are um, Spanish speakers, perhaps even native Spanish speakers. But when you look at the actual season for 22-23 in, uh, at FGO, if I was just to say Skiki, Tosca, and Barbara of Seville, I, you would raise one eyebrow. I, I, I don't know where the delight or the surprise is in that. Well, one surprise is the fact that instead of uh, pairing up uh, uh, Johnny Skiki with, you know, uh, another Verisma one hit wonder we've seen 3000 times they've actually have a sequel to Gianni Skiki by composer Michael Ching which apparently picks up the moment Gianni Skiki ends uh and uh basically they're trying to figure out uh, uh that there has been f- foul play in Buoso's death the, the opera's called Buoso's Ghosts Ghost rather and i think that it's i i think it's kind of a great idea because i'm i'm often disappointed when I go to see like a lot of these double bills of the Verisma ones because I, I, I always love one more than the other, you know, and I think it's great to have something new where you at least have that novelty yeah. factor to it. Yeah, and I think a- it also brings in the audience too, where there's a more modern voice continuing the same story, you know. It's, it's a great pairing. I, strangely, I've actually directed Bozo's Go. So I do, oh, really? I do, I do know this was like Drink. 10 years ago. I do know the show. <laughs> uh, look, I, I know Michael Ching. Here's the thing. Even Michael would not say that Bozo's Ghost is, is better than Skiki, right? Like, Skiki I is, don't think it's trying to be. I, I, I mean, hope it's, not. It's not, it's, it's not. It's not trying to. What it is is a great counterpart. And you make a good point that, that it is fun to see something slightly unusual. And like, dare, mm-hmm. let's add, lifting up a contemporary composer – an American composer and a person of color. Like, I think that uh-huh, has a lot uh-huh. of merit. 
We talked about Atlanta Opera earlier. And again, we got two more companies to go before I wrap up the segment. Let's go over to Atlanta. Again, Tomer Zvulan, the artistic and general director there. Yep. Uh, behind the wheel on a couple of these, uh, certainly the Rheingold, which is the, the co-production with LA Opera as well. What else, Ashley, um, was either uh, surprising, good or bad for you from the Atlanta season? Well, one is a quick moment of praise. One is a journey. Uh, Duke Kim as Otavio <laughs> is going to be great. Friend of the show. We love a oh, Duke yeah, Kim. Absolutely. We love a Duke Kim moment. Okay, so here's what happened. There's an odd graphic design choice that led to what I think is a misstaging opportunity. So uh, so Don Giovanni's being... It's, it's Giovanni, right? They're doing Giovanni. And uh, there was something in the graphic design over the gentleman looking at you in the image who is allegedly the handsome Lothario that is Giovanni. There's these like lines that look a little bit like the lapels of an airline pilot. And so for a second, I was like, oh, is this air themed? Is Giovanni going to be an airline pilot? I would watch the (laughs) hell out of a staging where the Lothario was like, because, you know, I mean, listen, if any of you have dated pilots, and I'm just going to go ahead and be the one to do that. Well, I'm not, but um, nope, TMI. But... (laughs) If you know anything about the dating habits of airline pilots, they're they're smooth. They're smooth MRFers. And uh, so the idea that Giovanni could have been an airline pilot, I, that's staging I would watch. So when I realized that wasn't what was actually happening and it was just a weirdly placed set of graphics, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll have to commission your version uh, for uh, next season. I think I would. I really, it. I I really have like a deep connection with Atlanta Opera because that was kind of my um, uh, not really my yeah. local company growing up, but it was the biggest opera company that we could like get to within a day. So that was always the one I went to when I was a little little little, little kid. Uh, I've seen them go through some uh, ups and some downs. <laughs> I, I really love uh, the path that's that they've been on for the past several years with uh, Tomer. And I think that uh, uh, I, I really like a lot of this season. I think uh, The Snowy Day, based on the classic children's book by Ezra Jack Keats, which I believe we talked about a little bit a few months ago, uh, is going to be a lot of fun. They're also doing Bluebeard's Castle, which I believe is a new production for them. I love Bluebeard. It's one of my absolute favorites. Um, honestly, a little jealous that they would do that after I moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, we, we do what we do. One thing that I think is really interesting, I'm not really sure it's a WTF because I think it's a, it's really, uh, in spirit, a very good thing. Um, but they're doing, they're doing Madame Butterfly, uh, which is going to be presented in partnership with the Japan America Society of Georgia. And that really kind of led me to sort of some thoughts like, how much can like we salvage butterfly in that respect, right? Because it's, uh, I, I think that it's a, there's a very interesting sort of conversation to be had. Obviously, a, a lot of you know what is being portrayed in a lot of these sort of orient, orientalist operas, of which Madame Butterfly is the most popular, uh, is really hard to stomach nowadays. You know, especially I mean, obviously the yellow face is not great. But even like the story itself, you know, I, I've, I've had, you know, friends who are new to opera go see, um, you know, Madame Butterfly and turned out with me. And and, um, you know, if it's their first opera and they're coming in as a young person in the 21st century, their gut reaction. It's not a good first impression, no matter how gorgeous the music is, no matter how uh, how well the production is thought out. I do think it's really interesting to make it a co-product uh, partnership with the Japan American Society of Georgia because that's a big sort of obstacle to get over. And I'd be interested to see if they can land that, how they manage it, how much they, you know, try to teach the audience to like try to see around some of the problems that are there. And um, I'm just interested to see what their thoughts are on it in general. This is what I'll say. If Atlanta Opera was able to get the Japan America Society of Georgia to put their name on this, right? There's gotta be some there there. I yeah. in in reading it, I absolutely inhaled through clenched teeth, like, oh no. But the more I think about it, it's that sort of sign off. There's there's gotta be some there there. So I yeah. am going to you know sort of reverse that inhale and exhale right back out through those teeth and wait to see what what the response is when the show comes out. 
I'll wrap up the Atlantis season by saying they're doing uh, Candide. This is directed by Alison Moritz, a friend of mine, although I don't think has ever been on the show, actually. Uh, She's directed, apparently, according to the press release, she's directed Candide three times before. So she knows what a beast of a show this is. It is a monster. It is a total monster. And man, you can get into that show as a director and realize that you are way in over your head. That's not <laughs> that's not Allison. But I'm I'm thrilled that it is on this uh repertoire list because I think it's a great show for audiences to see. Ashley, let's wrap it up. Take us into the listener mailbag to set up the final season announcement for our episode. Yes, our friend Catherine in St. Paul writes, Hi, Catherine. Hello, Opera Box Score. My hot take is the next season of Minnesota Opera. Out of a five opera season, there's a lot of diversity going on. While local to me isn't the same as local to you, there are composers, authors, and librettists in many places. Agreed. Preach. Why shouldn't the nearest opera company feature them rather than new opera's big names? Cases in point. Edward Tulane from a book by a local female author. The mm-hmm. song poet libretto by a local female Hmong author, music by a local female mm. composer. And, and I love this, Don Giovanni with a female creative team, conductor, stage director, scene designer, costume designer, lighting designer. Only the intimacy director is male. Mm. So mm. we get a different perspective on the Don. That's actually very exciting. That, that's of really nine, interesting. <laughs> yes. Of the nine podcasts I subscribe to, two of them are OBS and the score from Minnesota Opera. To keep enough opera in my ears. The way For, the way you read that, I thought that that two of the podcasts were OBS twice. <laughs> she just listens to them back to back. I was like, I can barely listen to this show once. <laughs> Well, we're doing something right for Catherine. Uh, She does also, in the spirit of this show, talk a little bit about sports as well. For the sports that I watch, minor league baseball and women's hockey, our local minor league baseball team was independent, now AAA. After the big reorganization, women's college hockey, Minnesota Twin Cities women win a lot. Minnesota Whitecaps, great to see women play professional hockey. It would be nice if they got more than 20K or whatever their pittance is for their efforts. I haven't felt comfortable inside a close space with people yelling, so I haven't been to a game in more than two years. Maybe in the 22-23 season. The Whitecaps rink is downtown. Very near where Minnesota Opera performs. Thank you for all that you do to keep us informed about opera, sports, and the world. Catherine and St. Yeah. Paul. Ah, oh, thank you, Catherine. Love I'm, the I, Minnesota Whitecap shout out. That's I a, know. Yeah. That's awesome. Could you imagine being uh, from St. Paul and not being able to see hockey for two straight years? I mean, oh, oh that's got to sting, I tell you what. That would be worse than the uh, McVicker Peleas. Probably. So, oh. But you know, up in Minnesota, it's like, hockey is life, eh? Ferda. Ferda. I, I, think, I, I think she she raises a great point, and I think it, it reflects really well with what we've been seeing with a lot of these season announcements. There's a much greater concentration this year, at least in the U.S., than normal, I would say, of bringing out these local influences, finding yeah. the ways to bring in your specific audience, which I think is great because this is the kind of stuff we we as a podcast have been yelling about forever and usually to deaf ears. But I think now that, you know, these houses have gone through the pandemic uh, and are starting to reopen and really try to like and really saying, OK, we're not going to we're, we're actually putting something on. We are definitely doing it. We're committing to this. I'm really glad to see companies really making an effort, successful or not, even making the effort, I think, is really admirable of trying to see what do our audiences right here want, not what do they want in New York City, not what they want in Chicago. What do they want right here and doing their best to provide that? And I think that's amazing. Ashley, did you have a FTW or a WTF on this one? I mean, we all know that I'm a big fan of Minnesota opera and the choices that they've made over the last few seasons. Uh, the the biggest sort of FTW and all, well, actually all of them, you know, the idea that there's a Hmong author that's going to be featured in this mm-hmm. season, especially because the Hmong population there is is much more significant than you may find in other parts of the country. So I right. think that's great. Also, this female creative team for Giovanni, I can we road trip? Can we go? Because I would love <laughs> it's six it's six hours from Chicago. We can get there. Yeah, easy. But just to see this story recreated with a f- largely full feminine gaze, it just doesn't 
happen. And part of the ire and the frustration that drives the action is how bad he is to women. So I can't wait to see what these ladies do to sort of reshape that narrative. That production directed by a friend of the show, Katura Stikan. I'll wrap up this segment by going back to the opera version of the story, Edward Tulane. This is based on the novel by Kate D. Camilla, who also wrote Despero, if you've ever read that book. Music by Paola Pristini. The libretto by Mark Campbell. First of all, um, this book, Edward Tulane, it's it's like Charlotte's Web and how it will make you cry. It is just so beautifully <laughs> written, and you know, and and having talked to Mark over the years, this is a production which has been put on pause because of COVID. I, I guarantee you that this creative team is so ready to get this piece out into the world. And talk about road trips, this would be it for me. Let us know what's on your mind. Let us know what you're thinking of season previews in your city or what we've talked about. It's super easy. You just you send us a voice memo or an email, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get some merch and you're going to get some swag. Ah, a little bit of sports before we get into Monday evening quarterback and then two-minute drill coming up at the end of the show. Actually, Ashley, we should check in on... Um, uh, the national title here. Oh, Kansas we, up. Yes. <laughs> I have it up right now. Do you have it up? I do. Tell us. Tell us what's happening. Can, uh, one seed Kansas is leading eight seed North Carolina, 11 to five. But it it's still the first half and there's 15 minutes left. So I, I, for, I forgot the Kansas, uh, excuse me, that uh, UNC was an eight seed in this. Yeah. The, Kansas yeah. is favored to win this ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. Opening day just around the corner in Chicago. Opening day is like you're basically wearing your snow pants. <laughs> it's it so is true. so cold. And you get you get to if you're on the north side like like I am, you get to Wrigley Field and you sit down and you're in the shade, say, on on the um third base line, you're like, wow, it really is cooler by the lake. I am absolutely <laughs> freezing. <laughs> Pass or fail, here's Monday Evening Quarterback. Fire Shut Up In My Bones, the opera composed by jazz legend Terrence Blanchard, of course, opened the Metropolitan Opera season back in October as the first opera by a black composer ever to be done at the Met. It's in Chicago uh, through the beginning of April, where it's the second opera ever done by a black composer, the first being the opera Amistad. I caught it on great performances on the PBS station. Uh, the That was the Met HD broadcast earlier this week. Weston, I want to start with you. Tell us where you saw the show, what modality you saw the show, show is, mm. and, and one thing that really struck you about it. Well, uh, I saw it at the Lyric Opera of Chicago um, before last week's episode, actually. So we couldn't talk about it to get so to avoid spoilers for you guys. Um, But I'm glad we are talking about it a little bit because it really is a kind of watershed moment, I think. Um, Seeing it live was was very interesting. The uh, uh, the uh, production was uh, was uh, was very sort of. much more sort of flat than you would expect. It's a there's a big sort of cube in the middle with some lights in it and then projections all around, which I couldn't quite see from the cheap seats way in the back. Um, but uh, there's there was definitely something to like the stark sort of minimalism of it. It reminded me of that um, uh, the production that the Met had uh, for a few years of Eugene Onegin, which is the the big bl- uh, blank sort of space where you let the the drama really take hold. Uh, and Will Liverman really was the linchpin of it all. Like the, there's a moment yes. at the end of the first act where, where you're starting to get a sense of what, what, what's actually happened to him because you, you open the opera and sort of in media res, he's pointing a gun, yelling about killing someone to, uh, the manifestation of his loneliness and you don't really know what's going on. So you like learn more and more until you get to the end of the opera, but you, you've, learned about his abuse and uh his his life at this point uh and there's just a moment where he's just repeating the same phrase over and over as the curtain's coming down and like you could feel the energy in the audience 
And also I will say like the audience in the lyric was super engaged. They, they were all in it. They were all like watching, you know, uh, not necessarily like, you know, having like huge reactions to everything, but, but like, there's like this quiet sort of like commitment to the action that I haven't seen at the lyric in a really long time. Um, very diverse audience as well. Uh, it, it was it it was it was truly something. Like it, it, it obviously the big news for them is that of course with the great performances, the Met. It's the first time a black uh, composer has been performed. But uh, even in a place where here in Chicago, where we've done that before, it still had that yeah. weight of history with it, and it was a really moving experience to me. I think Ashley, how did you see Fire Shut Up in My Bones? I also saw it at the Lyric. Uh, I saw it on a different evening than when uh, than when Weston was there. I saw it the day after we recorded last week, actually. Um, and, you know, the thing is, when I, I saw this opera very differently than I usually go and see live opera. When, when I go in, even if it's a piece that I know very well, I will just kind of like gear up and like get my game face on. I'll read a synopsis. I'll familiarize myself with right. some of the singers or, or elements of the production. Because this is a new piece, I just went in cold. I knew there was heavy Same. subject matter involved, but I didn't I didn't read any synopsis. I didn't read about libretto. I am familiar with Will. I'm familiar with LaTanya, but that was as far as I went. And it was a very different and very moving and impactful experience for me to just like let it happen to me as opposed to like anticipating what was coming next, you know, waiting for the money aria, waiting for the money note, whatever it was. <laughs> and when you're looking at new pieces, you know, and when you're seeing new productions or productions that are, are new to the piece or whatever, there's kind of two things, you know, you're sort of in one corner of your brain, you're evaluating the piece itself mm -hmm. uh, and what it, you know, the, the music and the, the text and sort of what what the actual things are that are on the page. And then on the other side of your brain, that's where you're evaluating the actual production elements, the performances that are happening in front of you. Because with something like a like a Tosca or a butterfly or even a flute, it's like we know what's happening. You know, people can get so creative with staging, but it's really about like evaluating the performance as opposed to evaluating the piece itself. And here with something new, it's like you're doing both things at the same time. And you know, Will is incredible. He was made to do this role. He was made to tell this story. And it's it's mm -hmm. a very moving performance. We should also congratulate, by the way, Justin Austin and Whitney Morrison, who went on as Charles and Billy for the April 2nd performance uh, here, or sorry, there in Chicago. And I think it was both of their, uh, it was Justin Austin's that debut for sure. Um, for me, the, the most moving things that, God, there were so many things that were moving, but the, the handful of things that I'll shout out right now We've talked about Will. Will is impeccable. His great performances. I caught a, a, a stitch of it on on my phone uh, because I have the PBS app and you too can see this. Uh, so I, I got to see it and it was just as beautiful on film as it was in person. Yeah. Latanya Moore as Billy is, it, it's devastatingly beautiful singing. She straddles that line between really beautiful classical technique, but allowing it to be very sort of, Whaley and letting those chords slap a little when things need to be a little bit more guttural and even having some mm -hmm. gospel elements mixed into it. But she did it in a way that was healthy because I've seen people try to do that mm -hmm. to evoke emotion and it, yes. it like it, it hurts my throat to to like I will hold it if I'm if I'm watching them. But Latanya navigates all that real beautifully. Also Reginald Smith Jr. as Uncle Paul. My goodness, the instrument on that man. It was <laughs> an extraordinary every time he sang, I was very excited. Although to be fair, you know, there's there's some heavy subject matter in this. And when his character first came on stage, I was afraid he was the nature of the heavy subject matter. <laughs> Me like, too. No, not Uncle Paul. And then it wasn't him. Um, and finally, the opening ballet of Act Two might possibly have been the thing that I remember and was moved by the most uh, yeah. of everything that was happening. It was a really beautiful extraordinary piece of storytelling but from mm. from the costumes to the choreography everything about it was just so extraordinary of course you know when 
when Charles Baby goes to college, you have the whole amazing scene of him in college with the <laughs> oh incredible freaking stuff. As soon as I got, you know, as soon as they mentioned that he has gotten his acceptance letter to Grambling, I was like, yes, I forgot that's coming. This is going to be great. Um, but there was something, and there was something so majestic about that and powerful. Now, Weston, you mentioned that, like, the audience was engaged, but but quietly. My audience was engaged, and we were not quiet. We were not <laughs> well, quiet. During, there was during the ta- during the step step, my audience kind of came out of out of the woodwork too. I mean, they, you, you oh, can't not. You know what I mean? We we didn't save it for the party at Grambling. We were having guttural vocal reactions <laughs> to devastating things happening on screen all throughout the piece. But yeah, I mean, people were out of their seats losing it during the grambling sequence. So as, as impactful as that dance is, and it's as, as history making as that portion of the dance was that act two ballet, just that it laid me out flat. Yeah. The, the dancing really was extraordinary. I, I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, I, I think of uh, operas in ballets as being kind of a relic of the past. Sometimes, you know, uh, a la, which is, you know, maybe a little bit narrow-minded of me. Like, I, I always, if I, if somebody says ballet and opera at the same time, I think Baroque. I think nineteenth century Paris. I yeah. think Oliver. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think of Oliver yeah. specifically. Um, but like, <laughs> I, it's it's been a long time since I've seen an a ballet sequence in an opera or ballet sequences in an opera that were so genuinely connected with what was going on. They're not dancing yeah. just to be dancing. That they're they're so necessary. Um, and so unapologetically just dance, you know, uh, yeah. and I, I, I really wasn't expecting to be surprised by that going in. But I'm glad you mentioned it, Ashley, because it, it, it really hit me, too, in the same way. That's actually why I got on the PBS app to watch part of the great performances is because I wanted to go back and watch that ballet yeah. again. It's absolutely right. stunning. I did watch it on, on great performances uh, last week on, on PBS. The reason that we go to live performance. The reason that we go to live sports is to see something that we never thought was possible. To mm. see something that is yeah. utterly unforgettable. It doesn't always happen in sports. It rarely happens in the theater. Watching this streamed production of Fire Shut Up In My Bones, you are seeing things that you never thought possible and that you will never forget. This is peace is truly, truly overwhelming. And I, I, I'm not really quite sure where to begin. We've, we've talked about the cast, Angel Blue, Will Liverman, Latanya Moore, and may I add Walter Russell III, to have a boy soprano who can cut through the Met Opera Orchestra with that clarion tone was utterly phenomenal. I want to go backwards. I want to start with the curtain call. The curtain call is overwhelming because you see such artistic so people. <laughs> you see you see a lot of people. You see so much incredible artistic excellence. And you see so much incredible black artistic excellence in one place and it's utterly overwhelming to be applauding for that. As a production, James Robinson Uh, the head of OTSL, Opera Theater of St. Louis, that commissioned the piece in 2019, plays it smart. The man basically stays out of the way. This is not a production which is intricately designed. The The projections are serviceable. They work. They're great. The choreography, we've talked about it. It's moving. But Jim Robinson is a smart guy, and he knows that he is not the center of attention on this production and stays out of the way. Lastly, again, we go to the opera to experience the unforgettable. I don't think I've heard a score like this ever. I've certainly never heard it at the Met, yeah. obviously, because it's never been done like this at the Met. That drummer alone in the yeah. pit was out of this world. I will say, um, speaking of the drummer and having that be sort of a, oh, that's new. That's different than what I'm used to hearing in this ornate gold gilded hall. (laughs) Weston, on the evening that you went to the Lyric, were there ever moments where even though that drummer is under the stage in the pit with the rest of the orchestra, did he ever cut a little too hard? Did he ever carry a little too high for you? Uh, My my only objection to the entire production uh, was uh, 
was that some some of the orchestration with some of the drum the drum in particular and um and I the 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 depth of the set going so far yeah. back swallowed a lot it does of go uh, way back. It, it swallowed uh, definitely some singing at the lyric production, which I imagine you probably avoid very handily in the uh, in the great performances uh, recording. Um, but to me, that just speaks to the um, to the opportunities this has to get new productions down the line where people can get more creative about how they use it, where they place the drums, where they place the singers. Yeah. And I really want to see multiple takes on this. Opera. Well, we all do. But th- this is where we disagree, West. I, I, mm. I cannot imagine how this production, which is a co-production between the Met and Lyric Opera Chicago and one other company. It is hard for me to see how this show is going to be done again. Like I, I, it, I, it I, needs I a lot of resource. You need a lot of resources, and this is why that live and HD stream is so important. That's why we're talking about it on the show. Yes. Is that you can go on now and you can see that. But like to see this production come back, this piece come back in ten or fifteen years in a brand new production. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying there's a lot of resources to marshal. But I think there are resources worth marshalling, and I think that the runaway success of it, I think, is a good hint to opera companies that this kind of thing is the thing that we should be investing in as a collective whole of artists. I agree with that. I mean, you know, if you're going to do it, make a splash. Uh, yeah. And and I will – there's one other thing that I wanted to mention. I know I went on and on, but I have one more thing I want to go on about was <laughs> the the way in which the – the delicate subject matter that we speak of is the childhood sexual abuse of the librettist Charles Blow. Right. And the way that it was directed was you knew what was about to happen, Mm -hmm. but it was done in a way that was protective and not overly suggestive because you do have, I mean, you have a boy soprano, you have a child on the stage who is playing Charles baby And I was really not afraid. I was nervous. I was nervous as to how that would be portrayed and how that would be put on the stage. And it was it was done in a way that I believe was protective of the child playing Charles Baby. But it was done in a way that was impactful enough that you felt the discomfort that you needed to feel without worrying for the welfare of the actor. Absolutely. And and this is what you get when a piece like this is in the hands of a pro like Jim Robinson, who's directing. Let us know what you're thinking. If you've seen the show, operaboxscore at gmail.com. It's on great performances on PBS. You have the chance to watch this piece. You also have the chance to get into the two-minute drill. It's coming up right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Grammy winners have been announced, and you'd better believe there are friends of the show on the list. More on them in just a moment. Anna Netrebko has had a bad week after she released a statement distancing herself from Putin and condemning the war in Ukraine. Russian organizations have begun canceling concerts with the soprano, and State Duma Chairman Volodin called for her to resign from future performances in the country for her, quote, betrayal of the state. And anti-war opera companies aren't so eager to welcome her back either. Quote, we're not prepared to change our position, said Peter Gelb at the Met. If Anna demonstrates that she has truly and completely dissociated herself from Putin over the long term, I would be willing to have the conversation. Arizona Opera is set to adapt a graphic novel of Bizet's Carmen on Kickstarter. Quote, it's a thrill for Arizona Opera to share the work of this remarkable team of artists through the graphic novel format and the timeless story of Carmen, said Joseph Spector, Arizona Opera's general director. Yellow cards are back. The Semper Opera Dresden has postponed their opening night of Madama Butterfly last week to this week, if everything goes as planned. In a press release, the company said, quote, due to the high number of staff absences due to COVID-19 infection, the premiere performance cannot be realized technically and artistically as originally planned. Deja vu, anyone? 
They found the Met Heckler, y'all. <laughs> the Metropolitan Opera has identified the Ariadne of Noxos interrupting Heckler and banned them from future performances. The company told the New York Observer, although opera singers are vocal athletes, they should not be subjected to the kind of heckling that sports spectators get away with in stadiums. <laughs> yeah, that'll teach them, Peter. On the disabled list, Tenno <laughs> Marcello Alvarez abandoned the production of Massenet's Manon Lescaut on opening night at the Teatro Carlo Felice last week. After Alvarez performed his first aria, Donna non vidi mai, he said, Non posso cantare così. Sorry. Exit stage right. Norwegian baritone Emil Havelnishkin has passed away at age 29. The director, Japago Spirei, writes of The Rising Star, Emil was the greatest talent I've ever worked with, and at the age of 23, he would audition with Iago and Wotan. He sang Leporello and Figaro at 24 like a god. We have lost a sensational singer, human being, and actor. And on this day, April 4th, not a lot happened. In 1676, the composer Giuseppe Maria Orlandini was born. In 1752, Italian composer Niccolo Antonio Zingarelli was also born. Uh, and in 1762, English composer Stephen Storis, known for his operas, uh, was born in London. In 1932... A film director and one-time opera director Andre Tarkovsky was born. He was known for one production of uh, uh, Boris Gudinov and no other operas. In 1936, it was the birth of Kiwi tenor Christopher Doig. And happy birthday to the composer Salvatore Schiarino. Schiarino. Oliver's not here to correct me. Born on this day, 1947. And in 2008, it was the first performance of a classic. Olga Neuwert's Lost Highway premiered in Graz, Austria. That's your two-minute drill. Tone, Emil uh, Nasagen, uh, who uh, recently passed away, singing from the finale of Das Rheingold. And wow, what a voice. I, I Yeah. What a... So sad that he died so young, really in an extraordinary talent that I, you know, had never heard of. Um, and uh, just just to hear it and, you know, hear what could have been, it's... Uh, it's 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 almost more devastating when you don't know them, you know, and you, you get a taste and... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was just a bizarre week in the drill. It was the, uh, the, all we, across uh, the board. <laughs> I was pulling composers out of nowhere. I'm pulling the, the on this day segment alone. Nothing happened on April 4th uh, except for Lost Highways premiere. And I'm the only one who cares about that in this panel, probably. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then some some uh, Baroque uh, Italian composers who Oliver probably knows about. Yeah, it's it's been a strange week all around. I think that uh, obviously the biggest story is unfortunately about uh, Anna Netrebko. Yeah. Uh and I think Why, that Jesus. it's kind of it's honestly very, I mean, kind of funny in that she um, has obviously lost all of her work in in the West essentially because of her past associations with Putin. And so it seems like in order to get back into their good graces, um, her attorney released a statement uh, in her name um, uh, condemning the war and distancing herself from Putin. And now she's being canceled all over Russia. Truly, cancel culture has gotten out of hand. Uh, I want to read a little bit of her statement, though, because I think it's uh, it is a lot Which more strong one? language than. Oh, go ahead, Ashley. 
I'm like, which one? She put out three. Yeah, there's so many. I'll read a little bit of one. Um, she says, I expe- expressly condemn the war on Ukraine and my thoughts are with the victims of this war and their families. My position is clear. I am not a member of any political party, nor am I, am I allied with any leader of Russia. Doubt. Um, I acknowledge and regret that past actions or statements of mine might have been misinterpreted. Uh, in fact, I have met President Putin only a handful of times in my entire life, m- most notably on the occasion of receiving awards and recognition of my art or at the Olympics opening cer- ceremony. I have otherwise never received any financial support from the Russian government and live in a tax resident in Austria. Um, and uh, certainly uh, I-, I do have some sympathy, which I don't have very often for Anna Trepko here, because truly she is caught in a rock and a hard place here. If she is truly sort of penitent for um, her her past, this is not a great position to be in because um, no one uh, no one who is not in Russia really believes her when she condemns Putin. Right. And then, of course, because of the nature of the uh, political situation in Russia, she cannot meaningfully condemn Putin without getting in trouble herself. And this is a point we see with a lot of... Um, people who are less obviously pro-Putin than Anna Trepko is or was perhaps. And uh, this is, I think, the question of the moment that a lot of people are wrestling with right now in opera companies all across the world. Look, first of all, we're not advocating to, to cancel Russian repertoire, right? So that is already been mixed up in here. That that makes that's like freedom fries, right? If you remember the days in the early two thousands, <laughs> like let us read Russian writers and let us perform Russian material. That that's not the issue. Look at Peter Gale. There's an article in the Guardian from London, which is, is an interview with him and about Russia and and Putin. And look, I'm no fan of Peter Gale. I've been hard on him on this show many many times, but he took the moral high ground here. And he played his hand perfectly. And he said, look, Trebko took a public stance over a period of years. Most Russian artists, including other singers who perform at the Met, have not taken any public political position. Their private positions are theirs to keep private. I have no problem with that. We're not asking them to fill out questionnaires for their loyalty to the Met or to the West. We're not doing any of that. And I don't think it's appropriate. What he said to her was, let's have a conversation. And what can you do publicly about this? And she didn't step up. Yeah, I, okay. We don't need another Ashley diatribe on this. We've already had, what, (laughs) 75, 76 of them on here. The one thing I will point out is in the statement that was released, her word usage in one sentence is very careful before she lies in the next one. Uh, She says, my position is clear, debatable. Um, I am not a member of any political party, nor am I allied with any leader of Russia. Notice that those are present tense verbs. I am not, I am not aligned because she absolutely has been aligned. In fact, she was one of the 499 absolutely. designated people <laughs> to campaign for him in his election. So she's not acknowledging what she has done. She's saying who she is now. And yes, people can grow and people can change. But given the full-on buffoonery we've seen from her in a couple of other areas, I don't really buy it. Then the lie comes in. I acknowledge and regret, well, it's not a lie as as much as it is a gaslight. I acknowledge and regret that past actions or statements of mine could have been misinterpreted. That's like hitting somebody and saying, I'm sorry that you feel this way. Like, it's, it's, it's such a gaslight of like, nope, everything's fine. You know, it's, it's, you know, calling somebody, you know, dissing on their outfit and then being like, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. No, you said it. You said it. You absolutely said it. So again, we don't want to cancel people that don't need it. We don't want to cancel people that can legitimately have changes of heart. Is that possible here? I'm going to give it a negative 0.05% chance of being true, but (laughs) we'll see. Going on. So with the Met, they, they found the heckler. And I just, you know, I love this quote that, that, that the Mets told the New York Observer, although opera singers are vocal athletes, they should not be subjected to the kind of heckling that sports spectators get away with in stadiums. <laughs> well, that's going to that's gonna go down really well up in the Bronx, I can tell you, <laughs> at Shea Stadium. But it's like, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, well, so, I mean, yeah, it's. They, yeah, they, they, it, get, they get heckled all the time in Italy. 
They get heckled all the time. What's the Are difference? you heckling us right now, George? No, I'm just no, yelling. Like, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the mic because I'm yelling. Yeah. I was like, George, who is this for? Like, <laughs> we've talked about this a little bit before, but obviously, like, you know, over the span of time that opera has been around, heckling and booing and throwing rotten vegetables has gone in and out of fashion depending on your region. Uh, certainly, <laughs> we are in a uh, we're we're in a time period right now, uh, certainly where you know I think there's a greater. If you can't appreciation. say anything nice, don't say anything at all. L- yeah, listen, <laughs> if you can't hurl nice abuse, just don't hurl abuse at all. <laughs> Maybe a polite boo at the at the at the curtain if you must, uh, but certainly not to interrupting the uh, the Ariane stage. <laughs> Look, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's still a little bit feral. We're just now figuring out how to exist in the same space as other humans. Listen, the world is hard enough. Don't make it harder by yelling tomfooleries. Before we uh, before we wrap it up, you two, what do I need to know about the Grammys? Because you know I haven't read anything about them. <laughs> well, and don't, well, spo- for the- don't spoil it for Oliver because he's going to want to talk about it next week. <laughs> Well, I think for classical music, there really wasn't a lot of uh, surprises, really. I I think it was uh, pretty straightforward. We talked a little bit about who we thought would win Best Opera Recording. We all basically said, you know... uh, Akhenaten was going to win and we were right and we got a, we got two friends of three friends of show off of that one which is pretty great um uh we very much congratulate them on their success I think like I said I was I was kind of rooting for soldier songs as the uh, sort of you know uh, real pandemic contender you know mm-hmm. I feel like it defined the height of the pandemic as a production more than something that happened before the pandemic but certainly you can't control the timing of the release dates. So um, I do think Akhenaten was a truly masterful production. Um, I, I think the only sort of odd odd one out was the... Um, Classical was, solo album? <laughs> yeah, that was the one that was kind yeah. of strange. Um, I, I, when, we, when we first talked about the nominees quite a while ago now because <laughs> the Grammys got delayed... Um, we, we all were kind of going through the, the, the album selections and we were, we were all collectively like, oh, what's mythologies? Didn't, haven't heard of that one. And then we like heard a little bit like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting, I guess. Like, well, it's probably going to go to, uh, uh, Unexpected Shadows or, or Venturiza. Uh, and then no, (laughs) mythologies takes it. I'm like, you know, good for them. Uh, bit of a plot twist. Uh, I was kind of surprised that, that, uh. Uh, that Jamie Barton wasn't going to be the uh, the woman of the hour, but um, especially with friend of the show Jake Heggie too, he would have gotten more friends of the show. But I guess we just need to expand our roster of uh, show friends. What would you add, Ashley? And also friend of the show Laura Dixon Strickling because her album Confessions was also nominated. Oh yes, she of also course. she also wins the night for best freaking gown. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is gorgeous. It's Ukrainian colors. I, they picked the pa- fabric before any of that happened, but it was absolutely stunning. The thing I love about the Grammys is that it really is music's biggest night. And it's this amalgam of all of the different parts of music coming together. So right. even though like our people, our team weren't on the telecast, they were in the same room. I mean, to be honest, like there's 86 different awards that are given out. They only give out like nine on the broadcast. So the glut right. of things actually happen before CBS hits on and broadcasts to millions of people. Mm-hmm. The thing that's so great about the Grammys in general is that everybody's there together in the same room, all these incredible creative artists from all these different corners. And one of the things that really happened last night in the telecast was this celebration of that, the celebration of all of these different creators being in the same space, being in Las Vegas because they had to move locations, but just having people be, again, together again, which was very exciting. And all of the performances, or at least most of the performances, really, it was about joy. So Mm -hmm. many of the public performances that happened on the telecast were about joy. So many of the awards went to people that like it made they largely made sense. Uh, there wasn't a big sweep as is want to happen in some of the popular categories. It was very moved around. John Baptiste got some of the very, very well-deserved awards, but he didn't run away with it, even though he was like the most nominated artist of the evening. So the telecast and the evening itself was really a celebration of what music is right now. I appreciate the wrap up. I'm sure we're going to talk more about that in the future. Right now, we're going to wrap up our show. Good call. 
bad call on Opera Box Score. Speaking of awards, uh, I finally watched the little the Oscars clip. Dang, Will Smith really did slap Chris Rock. Yeah, <laughs> did you miss that? <laughs> I, I mean, like I knew that it had happened. Like I don't obviously I don't care about the Oscars because I don't watch movies, but I did want to watch that little clip, and I was like, dang, like he really hit him. And then he really swore. Like, he was he was mad. And there are a lot of takes on why that may have been the case. Um, I definitely recommend to you Emmanuel um, Acho, A-C-H-O. Uh, he's, a, he's a great thinker and talker, and he has, a, he has a really great sort of take on the how and the why and the years of experience that came before that moment. And his perspective is a really great take. Interesting. Interesting. Does he say that violence doesn't solve anything? He doesn't say that expressly. I mean, I, I think he's definitely in the maybe don't hit people category, but right. he's he adds more nuance and context that I think is a really excellent take that I would prefer to defer to him as a black man to cover. Ashley, what's your good call? My good call, speaking of Grammys, is uh, John Baptiste won the final award of the night for Album of the Year, and his acceptance speech really got me in the gut, and it's something that I think we should all ruminate on and think about because so much of what he said really does hit for our community and our art form. He said, I really believe this to my core. There is no best musician, best artist, best dancer, best actor. The creative arts are subjective, and they reach people at a point in their lives when they need it most. A song or an album is made, and it almost has a radar to find the person when they need it the most. This is for real art, real musicians. Let's just keep going. Be you. I love you even if I don't know you. Mm. Yeah. That is it for this week's edition of America's Oh, you're Talk just going to jump right show. over me, huh? We're back to this again. Did you have a good call or a bad call? I thought that was my a, good call. How could this possibly be better than John Baptiste? But go ahead, Wes. No, well, please. good You're news. Hear the good little news. nothing that you have to say. <laughs> well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, I did adopt a dog over the weekend, and it was very, very important. And this is always the biggest test of a dog in the Williams household. Um, uh, we take them in, you know, we bring them to the house for the first time, we get them all comfortable, and then we go and find the weirdest piece of music we can possibly find. In my case, it was Stockhausen's Donnerstag Auslicht. I just blast that, <laughs> blast that, that puppy, as, puppy as loud as possible, and she didn't freak out. She loved it. We're on the same wave, wavelength. We're vibing now. It's great. Now you're hurting animals. What you say? <laughs> Please don't call Animal Control on me for playing Stockhausen to my dog. God, I get us canceled off Dallas and you get arrested for dog. End of the road. (laughs) Apparently, it's also the end of the road for Kansas. UNC 38, Kansas 22, two minutes left in the first half. Tobias right now apparently uh, pooping in his pants. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, Norm Waddell, he's at normwaddell.com. If you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Again, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore, gmail.com. You're going to get that beer coaster, that OBS lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you prepare for baseball's opening day. We're back with an all-new show next week. We head overseas for more season previews, and Oliver inducts a personal hero into the OBS Hall of Fame. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and no more Anna Natripko, apparently. Join us.